Welcome to season eight of the Life Giver Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Weathers. I'm a military spouse, clinician, and leadership coach. And Life Giver is where I get to spark honest conversations, interview experts, and encourage you with topics on military culture, marriage, and leadership. So give yourself permission to pause and lean in. There's something for everyone here. Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. This is a bonus interview that I'm having with my friend, Amber Mattingly. She has a doctorate um, of ministry in compassionate leadership. I mean, what an incredible sounding doctorate. I know it's something that I could definitely learn from. And I decided to do this bonus interview after I had posted on social media a couple of days ago about Matt and I incorporating more yoga and prayerful meditation in our life and like some radical changes that, that has brought um, to softening our hearts and especially softening our hearts towards ourselves. And when I posted that on social media, there were several comments that um, reminded me of some of the fears out there of practicing yoga or even meditation still sounds a little scary or strange. And yet there's so much science and evidence behind the healing power of meditation. In fact, Besser Vanderkolk, who um, is the clinician that discovered and named PTSD. He has a trauma center out of Boston. He's done so much research. His book, The Body Keeps Score, um, is an incredible book talking about how we hold and store trauma in our bodies. I remember going to a conference where he was there years ago. This was over a decade ago. And I remember him sharing the research that prayer and meditation are very similar in the way that they heal our mind and our body and our heart and the way that they control our breathing and how that incorporates just overall healing. So this episode is going to be a little bit more faith-based than my usual episodes for a reason. Because there is so much fear from certain faith traditions surrounding this topic of yoga and meditation, I wanted to specifically do a bonus episode where we really dive into some of the hard questions that keep us from um, maybe trying some of these practices out of fear that we're introducing practices from another faith tradition. And I knew that bringing Amber Mattingly to share not only her story, but also her research and also um, just what she has seen and how she has answered some of these tough questions, being um, a pastor of a church in Houston, being also a yoga instructor, going on this journey herself and some of the things that she's discovered facing some of those fears and asking some of those hard questions. I wanted to share it with you guys. Hopefully it answers some of the hard questions that you have. And if you have questions that we did not cover, please feel free to reach out to me and I will do everything possible to record another interview with Amber. So here is my interview with Amber. Amber, welcome to podcast. Thank you for being willing to jump in so quickly and record this so quickly so we could get it out. Absolutely. Thank you, Corey. I am honored uh, to be interviewed on a topic that I am very passionate about as it is very personal to my life. Yeah. And okay. So I have known you for like 20 years, something yes. like that. 20 years. We are actually in seminary together for a little while. We both were at Baylor's Truett Seminary back in 2001, something like that here in Texas, um, until I kind of had a nervous breakdown, honestly, because I realized I was not built for a doctorate of ministry. <laughs> I mean, I was not enjoying some of those classes on I remember specifically, Amber, you and I took a Moltmann, a Jürgen Moltmann class on the theology of hope. And he's a German theologian. And I, that was my breaking point was that class. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that class because I think I blocked it out besides the formation of our friendship that I really enjoyed over that class. But he is very difficult um, to understand and uh, and still to this day, I have picked up some of his writings and appreciate uh, Jürgen Moltmann. And at the same time, 
have a little bit of resistance because of what we went through in that class. <laughs> it was um, it was actually an also wonderful time um, of not only our friendship, but um, just a wonderful time early on in our marriages and um, and everything. And I remember especially meeting you back then, and you were even back then very interested in the spiritual practices and also the spiritual disciplines that um, so often I think our faith traditions, I think, you know, Catholics are a little bit better at this, even some like Lutheran and Episcopal um, groups are a little bit better at some of the disciplines, like the daily practices of prayer, the daily practices of confession, let's say for um, Catholicism, but a lot of the Protestant side struggles a little bit with those um, practices. And I remember having a lot of engaging conversations with you about looking into those spiritual practices. Do you remember that as well? Absolutely. And I think what was unique to Truett was that we had those covenant groups. And in the covenant groups together, we explored a lot of the different Christian spiritual practices, some that were very new and kind of foreign to me, at least at the time. Um, because what I knew of Christian spiritual practice just growing up was prayer, uh, reading the Bible, and tithing. If you want to be honest, that was sort of the trifecta uh, for me at the time. And so my world kind of expanded by going through some of those spiritual practices in our covenant groups. Well, I just remember you asking really great questions and really starting to pursue some of those practices yourself a little bit more. And I remember it making me think a little bit more about you know, how I was doing some of those those practices or if I was doing some of those practices um, and ways that I could have taken my faith and my walk with God just a little bit deeper if I was a little bit more intentional and mindful. So I look back on that and I see how what an incredible path you have been on that I look back and see how it, it, it started way back before um, some other pivotal markers that maybe we'll we'll talk about. But I would not say, Amber, that you, when I knew you even back then, I would not say that you were an anxious person or um, or anything like that. And yet when I saw you in person again, like 10, 15 years or more later, like I noticed a significant shift in you. And I, I think that a lot of that um, has been due to life, but I think also... Um, you incorporated yoga into your life and you have such a peace and such a centeredness that is so hard to explain. And so what I would love for you to do is just to share your journey. Um, you know, you are are kind of like this interesting, odd person in, their, in your space. I mean, I love with that. so much... I know. I love it because, I mean, there's so many things that could be, you know, let's say I'm air quotes here, controversial and that you are a female head pastor. Um, You're a yoga instructor. Like, tell us how in the world does all of this go together? Um, But surely you have, I know you have an incredible story that goes behind that. So why don't you just share a little bit about your journey to becoming a pastor Um, and also how you decided to start incorporating yoga and why. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I'll start with that second question as I think it then bleeds into the story of how I arrived where I'm at today as the senior minister of the Woodlands Christian Church. Um, It was early on when my son had just been born and we recognized that there were some neurodiversities Um, He wasn't developing the way he should or, you know, air quotes, the normal pattern of development. And so we began having conversations with different doctors and and getting the different therapies in place that we needed. And it took a couple of years for us to get the diagnosis of autism. And within those couple of years of going to meet with doctors and trying to provide for him I really found myself completely stressed out, uh, terrified um, that I was going to somehow do something wrong to hurt this child. I was scared for my marriage um, because if you look at the research, 
uh, families that have a child who is neurodiverse, typically um, the the people, the parents don't make it in their marriage. It's very hard on the marriage because your focus becomes, how do I help this child? How do I care for this child? And everything surrounds um, this beautiful gift that you've been given from God to care for. So I arrived at a place where in the caregiving process, um, we also had then our daughter and um, she had some tummy issues and some sleep um, issues. But um, other than that, she developed uh, along the normal path. But um, adding another child so quickly after we had our first and he was newly diagnosed was just another stressor, both a positive stressor, but also had some negative effects on my health. And so I had arrived at a place with all of this caregiving that my body really started to break down. Um, I stopped sleeping for a year. Um, and when What does that look like? I don't know if you remember, but that was the year that you and I would talk almost every morning as I was driving Peyton to mm-hmm. the school that we found for children with autism. And I think maybe you were going through your first deployment and, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, not sleeping and commuting so that my child could have the therapies that he needed. And I was fully caffeinated, but also like terrified. I probably shouldn't be on the road. Um, What that looked like was I would fall asleep at night for about 30 seconds and wake up refreshed like I had slept all night. And I mean, I would journal and like cry out to God and I would read scripture. And then I had my angry journaling to God. Of, Why are you doing this to me? I'm trying to care for this beautiful, you know, creation that you gave me. And here I am falling apart. What am I doing wrong? And so mm. a lot of anger at God, but also like self-blame. And if I could only get my act together, if I could only do this better, or why can't I handle this? God says, you know, that God won't give us more than we can handle while well, I'm falling apart. So I'm obviously not faithful enough. Um, So a lot of this inner dialogue was becoming very toxic as well. And I think part of what was keeping me up at night. um, Now the body was beginning to break down in different parts because just like you beautifully said, we store all these emotions in our body and whether we know it or not, you know, sometimes people say, Oh, I, you know, I hold stress in my shoulders or in my hips. Well, you actually hold specific emotions and memories of experiences in places in your body. Um, And so that was not something I knew at that time. But what I did know was that Something was missing in my spiritual practices. Now, I had graduated seminary. I had all these tools in my tool belt that were beautiful. And yet, as a minister, I was saying to people, something is missing. Mm -hmm. And so that's what led me into thinking about, okay, well, what is missing? Can I pause you just for a second? When you would say that to people, what would they say back? They would just look at me with blank stares and really like have nothing to contribute. Of course, I was that odd mom that I was putting my kids on what they would or what certain people in our churches would say was unnecessary diets. Well, my kids had food allergies. So it wasn't an unnecessary diet to me, but what it looked like to them was that I was very restrictive of my children and what they ate and where they went and um, where Peyton walked, our son walked down the hall. Well, he, he didn't have a sense of space. And so he would just walk off stairs, not realizing we'd have to step down and multiple times just head over feet down the stairs. So anyways, I was already the oddball. So the fact that I was asking these questions, it was like, well, I don't really know how to help you, Um, which was the same of what I was getting. Of course, this was 
19, 18 years ago. So when I would go to doctors with Peyton, there was a lot of, well, I don't really know how to help you. Mm. At that point in time with autism, it was like, well, we know that certain uh, therapies work at the beginning, but we're not really sure the path forward. So there was a lot of not really sure. Hope you can figure it out. I mean, I remember one doctor turning to Chad and I, and we were like, okay, well, what's the next appointment we need to make with you? And he was like, no, like, good luck. Wow. I thought, okay, what? It's so painful. It was very painful. I left most doctor's appointments crying. It's so, um, it's so painful. And I imagine... I'm just going to put myself in your shoes and maybe this is more revealing about me than maybe about you. So please tell me if you had a different reaction, but when I put myself in your shoes and I think about telling people like something is missing, part of it is out of desperation. Like, please like talk with me, please. Like, let's get into a discussion and figure it out together. What are you doing that I could be like anything, but something is missing. But I think when you are in, in leadership and, and people even just knowing that you've been to seminary kind of put you in this category of leadership that you should know, like you're there to teach them. They're not there to, you know, they believe that they're not there to give you that wisdom. And when you're faced with like a nothing answer, it can just feel so isolating and feel so, um, I think that we tend to enter in those moments into more shaming of ourselves. Like, like all kinds of things. Like I imagine I should know more. I should know better. If they don't know, then I should be the one that knows. That's maybe a more prideful shaming. But I think there's also that feeling of like, I feel so alone. And and we can shame ourselves in that loneliness too. Absolutely. And there's a lot of, I experienced along with those emotions, anger of why didn't my church or seminary or friends, minister friends, why didn't they have some sort of wisdom to offer me? Um, and so anger outwards, but then also that anger inwards of, you're right, I should know these things. I How could I get to this place and not have an, one next step? Maybe I don't see mm-hmm. the whole thing, but like at least one next step. Um, and so there's a lot of anger and sadness and frustration. And, and also, what does this mean if my faith is not enough? Hmm. Which is hard to say out loud and hard to say out loud to other believers because it sounds so, um, ugly. It sounds so like not, not something we say out loud when we feel it. Absolutely. And I didn't say it out loud for many years to anyone other than my husband, my journal. And I think maybe you at the time, because I was so ashamed of those feelings. Um, And yet, you know, now I see that it's not just me having those feelings. And when I give voice to that, that I am providing safe space for others to voice their own uh, experience and their own concerns. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that you're able to do that. Um, and I see the hand of God in, in giving us often, oftentimes allowing us, maybe not giving us, but allowing us to go through very difficult things because there are other people around us that desperately need that compassion as well. So you recognize something was missing. Mm-hmm. So then what? Okay, well, my sisters had been inviting me to their yoga class, I mean, probably for a year. And I just kept, no, no, no. I was very resistant to it for all the reasons that many people are continuing to be resistant to it. So um, the way people feel about yoga, like, I get it. I was there. Um, and I thought, well, that isn't a part of my faith tradition and, uh, there's going to be something weird and, um, I'm going to invite something in that shouldn't be there or, wow, well, I guess I can't be a follower of Christ if I go try this. 
Um, and I definitely can't tell anyone because I'm a minister. And what would they think if I was attending a yoga class? And I think the bigger fear, what if it worked? Yeah. So I eventually went to the yoga class. I think it was after a full year of barely sleeping and thought, I mean, I just, I'm all out of try. I'm all out of ideas. I'm all out of knowing what to do. So, okay, God, if you have been speaking to me through my sisters over and over and over again, invitation, I need to go and just see what it's like. Um, so I found myself on my yoga mat and the first six weeks, I went almost every day and every day I couldn't even finish the class because all I did was cry. And I didn't know what was going on with me because to that point, uh, I'm not really a crier. It takes a lot. I, I cry angry tears. Like when I'm mad, I get tearful, but I'm, this was a, a deep sorrow. Um, and I remember saying to one of the yoga teachers or almost apologizing, like, I am sorry that I am such a mess. I mean, if you need me to go over to the corner or like whatever, and, and I'm sorry that I can't finish the class. And, and she said, oh, no, no, you know, everybody comes here for different reasons. And she said, might I suggest that you're releasing a lot of stored up emotion and, you know, explore that and see if that resonates, if that sounds true for your experience. And then as it happens, you won't be so fearful or, you know, uh, apologetic because it's just a part of the process. So much grace in that. Yes. <laughs> Which is a whole other episode whole other to cover. Yeah. So, so what, what was it like for you to lean into that? You know, part of me felt like I was working through a lot of resistance. Um, and this is another thing that you can chalk up to feeling very ashamed about is that I was resistant to accepting the diversity of my son and mm. was really thinking a lot about me, 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 how it affects my life. I was very driven and yet I, to have a career and, and a, a job that fulfilled me. And yet at the time I couldn't because I was caring for him. And so it was a lot of things coming up about me being um, accepting that God gave me this beautiful gift and seeing the beauty in him. And I know that sounds awful. Um, Doesn't. And at the same time, it's so real and it was true mm -hmm. to, to my experience and I found that once my heart softened to the diverse family that God gave me, that my heart was also softened to diverse spiritual practices, and, but they also might offer me and others. And so it was kind of this dual thing going on of as one wall came down, it was like another wall came down. And I just felt my heart expanding, which made me step back and go, okay, if I am following Jesus and coming to practice yoga, and I'm experiencing my heart expanding to include more and more and feel love more and more for myself, for my son, for others in this space. How is that not God? Yeah. How did you um, bring these together? I would love to walk through that. Maybe if you want to do this in a different order, like you've thoughtfully thought through all these things, but um, I'd love to talk with you about how you started to kind of bring these together 
before we go into the book that you wrote with your colleague, which is fascinating. So I want to make sure that we get to it. Um, so how in your journey did you start to bring those more together? So it took a little bit of finding some authors that I would be kind of along that line of expanding my heart and my mind. And Richard Rohr was one of those authors and in many of his books. Um, but the one that I was reading at that time, which I can't remember the name of, but he talked about how we are all created differently, which that's no surprise, but that he sees that many of us approach uh, spiritual practices, life in general, in three different ways. Um, some of us are intellectual and we're thinkers and we are drawn to spiritual practices that really inspire thought and uh, in the mind. And, um, and we also uh, kind of go through life with interpreting things first with the brain. And then there are those of us who explore spiritual practices and our experiences of life through our emotions. That's the first thing that we, we feel things intensely. Um, and so we're drawn to spiritual practices that also kind of cultivate that sense of emotion. And then there are those of us who experience life first through the body. And he wrote in his book that in Christianity, we either haven't had or we have lost some mm -hmm. of the embodiment practices. And so for people who are body people, meaning that they experience life and something happens and they first feel it in their body, there are people who say, well, I just went with my gut. You know, those type of people. And then sometimes they're able to like process it through their mind and then get to the emotions of it. For those people, the Christian tradition has lost or maybe never developed a lot of practices for those type of people who experience life through the body. Well, that just happens to be me. Would you say that's um, an empath? Um, you know, some people might say that, um, some people might group and so like, how would you know, maybe that's the better question. How would you know? How would you know which way you kind of lean? How would you know if you're that person that experiences things other than like, I had a gut level feeling, yeah. um, like, I think that at first when you were describing it, I think that I'm the more of the intellect side, but I actually, as, as I've gotten older, especially like I feel things in my body, like oh. my first couple of yoga sessions, I told Matt when I left, it took me the entire yoga session to not feel everybody around me physically. Ah. Like I can literally feel the energy if this, that sounds weird, but I'm so sensory. Yeah. Like I can feel people's stress. I can feel people's, um, um, what, whatever they're putting off, like if, um, or just the knowing that they're there, but I feel it in my body. So then I'm go going, well, that kind of sounds like me maybe, but how would you help someone else know which one they are? Because I think you're right. I think, especially in our faith tradition and especially as women, and I think you told me this years ago and it's stuck in my head ever since, especially as women, we disassociate from our bodies very early on. And so we don't even listen to what our bodies are saying because we automatically assume that there's something wrong with us or that it's dirty or that it's whatever, it's not good enough. And so we disassociate. Yeah. So how would we know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the best tool is the Enneagram, which I know we don't have time to go into today, but your um, eight, nines, and ones, Richard Rohr said is, is the body type. Your two, threes, and fours are the emotions and your five, six, and sevens are the thinkers. Um, but just as far as knowledge base, I knew that I was not the emotions because yeah. I rarely am able to understand what emotion I am feeling, let alone communicate it. So mm -hmm. I started thinking, okay, well, maybe I'm a thinker. Mm -hmm. Well, I, when I thought about that, I'm like, 
That's not how I bring in the information, though. Um, so the process I go through is my body is affected. I have some sort of sensation in my body or a gut feeling about things. And then I have to spend a lot of time in reflection, thinking about it, using the brain to ask questions of genuine curiosity. And um, so that time spent in reflection is important. And then sometimes I feel blessed when I get there, but sometimes I'm able to say, oh, that's because I'm feeling this. Yeah. So if you are like that, then you're probably a body type. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Okay, I know I took you on a tangent there, but you were talking about how you blend those two together and how Aura helped you with that. Yeah, so Richard Rohr really allowed me to first explore, okay, wow, I, I am a body type and what what happens for us? You know, what's the spiritual practice for us? And then there are some other authors who were coming out with books who were in the same Enneagram zone, I guess you would say, as I am. And and many of us have found our way to yoga or incorporating yogic-like practices in um, running or dancing or but all very much having to do with the body and movement of the body. Um, so it started to relax me because like we had talked about at Truett, we had had all these spiritual practices that we had gone through and I was using all the tools in my tool belt, but none of them incorporated the body. And so mm-hmm. finding my way on my mat and one of the yoga teachers saying, this is like a prayer or a meditation in motion. And I thought, Mm. ah, and so she just described like, pay attention to your breath. Like, yes, you're concerned with where your body is in space. And are you, you know, making sure that you're doing it safely for the body. But once you settle into the pose, then just bring the mind to focus on the breath and the feeling of the breath coming in and out of the body. And I mean, If you study scripture, Yahweh is actually the name for God that is patterned after the sound that our breath makes. And so it started to make sense to me that, ah, as I breathe in, it's Yah, and as I let go and release the air, it's way. And so there's this beautiful, like, God is with us in the breath. Um, And so... Kind of translating, I guess you would say, because the the group that I did practice with was very much an interreligious room. And I would say that many of the teachers are either Hindu or Buddhist, Um, but they would say that, you know, yoga was developed way before any formalized religion uh, came to be. And so it was even before Hinduism that people were putting their bodies in these shapes as spiritual practice. And then knowing even the littlest bit about Hinduism is that they are very much a faith tradition that wants to share practices And so I had somebody say, well, don't you feel like you're taking a jewel from another religious tradition, Mm. claiming it for yourself? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to steal anybody's treasures. And then I actually um, went through a process where I had a... um, someone in my interfaith seminary during my doctoral studies, uh, we worked together and he uh, was Hindu and he taught me a different spiritual practice. But I, I asked him about it and he said, oh, no, like we're we're here for the sharing. And if we discover something that like connects us to God, like and it and it works for you as well, like we're overjoyed. We're over the moon. Mm. That is something that you feel creates more of a union between yourself and the divine. So let me interject here because I wanted to ask you some of the harder questions, right? That I think that a lot of people might be either afraid to ask or that I can imagine somebody asking. 
I think that we are brought up in our um, faith tradition, especially the Protestant side. I can only speak for that because that's the side I was brought up in, where we are taught that moments like that can be tricky, mm-hmm. as if like it's tricking you into um, that really they can't be solely willing to just graciously share that really it's meant to hook you. That if you just, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like that you try this tradition and then you've come to our side because you just, and so, so much of these faith traditions, there's a fear mentality around coming close to it because as if we can be hooked by something or enticed or, or um, deceived or confused um, if, like you said, something works, we think um, that it's working because we devoted it to God. But in reality, it, it was a tr- another faith tradition that hooked us into um, their line of thinking or whatever. So what would you say to something like that? You laughed. So I know that's a knowing laugh there that you can understand where I'm coming from on that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that is very tricky. Um, and something that I would not want to, um, steal the experience from someone else or shame them for whatever experience they are having in the moment, if they feel that way. Um, But what I would say for me is that the moment it really became clear was you think about in Christianity that Jesus says, come follow me. Now, my whole life, I thought that that meant Come believe as I believe, um, come do as I do. Um, and then I was in this uh, Buddhist group and they were talking about the Buddha and how he really encouraged people not to convert um, and yet to, hey, try it out, experiment with it, see if it works. And that made so much sense to me. I thought, I think that's what Jesus was saying to us. Mm. Try it out. Come experiment with it. Um, Because I believe that if it's safe and from God, that it works. And so my whole experience of wondering, what if it does work? What does Mm -hmm. that mean about my faith tradition? What does that mean about me as a Christian, as a minister? Well, what that means about my faith tradition is that it's evolving and that Mm -hmm. most likely my my friend to and my co-author, Pima, she would say, you know, I think that we've lost some of the traditions and some of the practices that we're in Christianity. Um, and if if we can go through a process of recovering some of those by spiritually growing together in an interfaith setting, um, wouldn't that be um, a, a beautiful, you know, a part of our story um, as human beings? Um, and so anyways, um, I think that part of that fear, we know that fear is not of God. And so that's something anytime I was frightened or thinking, what am I doing here? Or what does this mean? I would say to myself, okay, scripture says that fear is not from you and that love, that God is love. And that when I release and allow the flow of love to move through me, that that is God working through me. And so to be quite honest, it's the, not the end result, but it's who I saw myself becoming that I said, okay, if embracing yoga as a spiritual practice for me is making me more loving, is making me more compassionate, is filling me with peace, um, is leading me to listen and understand my neighbors who are different from me in a different way. If it's leading me to embrace diversity in all its forms, then I feel very confident to say that this practice was a gift from God to me and my way of following Jesus. 
It's so beautifully said. You know, the older that I get, um, I'll, again, I'll speak for myself, but um, the more often I see the enemy tempting. I mean, when I work, do strength finder with people, we often use our strengths, which is the way that we see the world and the way that we bring our talents to everything that we do around us. You can see like if something is really difficult, if it's a weakness for you, it's not going to be very productive for the enemy to tempt you with that because you're not good at it and you don't do it all the time. Right. So I've even in doing the strength finder, I found the enemy is far more successful using our strengths to tempt us in those ways. And what I mean by that is I've seen the enemy be um, dangle more shiny carrots in front of people, maybe apples, shiny apples in front of people. Right. What looks good, what looks um, like, uh, why wouldn't it be from God, right? To like tempt us off into a different direction, but we never actually pursued our, like our relationship with God to see if that's a direction that we want to go. But because it looks good, you know, then surely I must say yes to this. Let's, I mean, I'll just use an example of like volunteering, whether yeah. it's in your church or whether it's in your community. Um, it's a good thing. Like, why wouldn't you volunteer? But that doesn't mean that this is the right time and season for you to volunteer. And if you were to enter into prayer time and ask God about that, he might tell you, no, you have every permission to set those boundaries to care for these other things that are in front of you. But just because volunteering is such a good thing, we say yes to it and put a, like a, a rubber stamp on that and say that God said yes. And I think also the enemy tempts us a or makes us a better, better said, he makes us fearful of things that are actually good and healthy. And if he can make us afraid of it, then we don't get to experience some of the things that you've described. If he just makes us very afraid, like surely that's, that's not good for you. Surely that is, you know, against your faith or surely it's dangerous. And yet on the other side of it, it is like setting people free. And it doesn't mean that it replaces your faith tradition entirely. It just means that there's these practices, like you're saying, that biologically, neurologically, like so many things that are helpful when you incorporate it in your faith system. And so I think, you know, that would be kind of my additional answer to, because the next thing I was going to ask was, you know, people being afraid of like, but isn't that just cracking the door, you know, but like, like you said, I think that we have to walk into safe places. We have to walk into and know what are, what at least the foundations of our faith. But I love when you were talking about Jesus saying, follow me. I mean, Jesus asked people to follow him into places that were so different than what everybody was used to and what the Pharisees were doing. It was just completely outside the structure than, that they had been used to. And most of it was like walking through the land and talking to people that they normally wouldn't talk to. And yet we've gotten so afraid. Yeah. And like you said, that can't be from God um, if it's fear involved. And I'd love for you to expand on that more, but I really want to make sure we talk about your book too. Yeah. So um, your book, A Leap of Interfaith, um, Finding Treasures Through Shared Practice is a phenomenal book. It's a small book, so you can get it on Amazon. I'll make sure that it's linked in the show notes. Um, it's literally, I'm looking at it on my computer right now. It's $7, everybody. It's $7. <laughs> so um, talk about this book and what you and your colleague Pema did together, because I think it's fascinating. Absolutely. Um, it was in my doctoral program. So both Pema and I met at Claremont School of Theology uh, in it's an interfaith seminary. And we were in the same cohort coming in. And I, there was something about her, the light in her eyes, the smile on her face, the peace that she had, that the moment I saw her, I wanted to be friends with her. And uh, it's kind of like how I felt about you when I met you in seminary. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of unrest happening in me back then. <laughs> me recognizing the unrest in you and saying, yeah, we're <laughs> for a while. 
<laughs> Probably. <laughs> but um, yeah, she's just a delightful uh, human being. And we began having conversations where we realized that She's very, she's a yoga instructor as well, and very deeply devoted to spiritual practice. Um, she leads a, an interfaith group that uh, practices a certain style of meditation and then reads books together on Wednesday evening that um, I'm still a part of to this day. And during the course of our studies, which were compassion-based. So the first year was compassion for self, and then it was uh, compassion in um, the church, but looking at like how to organize things in a compassionate way, and then compassion even in uh, hard situations and disagreements. And when we find ourselves in those hard topics, how do we still uh, hold space in a compassionate way? And our last semester, uh, we both chose an elective, and this is so funny, but I chose spiritual practices in the interfaith world, and she chose Christian spiritual practices. Now, um, she is Buddhist, and so the fact that she chose Christian and I chose interfaith was such a funny thing. Well, we came to a point where we realized that our projects were to find someone to teach us a spiritual practice. And so um, she I, she came to me and said, hey, I want to work with you. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I have this project and I'd like to work with you. Well, the project was we took six weeks for me to engage. And I asked her to teach me a practice that was really uh, heartfelt to her. Uh, so had deep meaning. Um, but in her Tibetan Buddhist tradition, some of the practices can't be taught outside of those who practice their tradition. And I knew that. Um, and so I said, whatever is allowed and yet is really heartfelt is something that I would love to explore. And so she began teaching me the Buddhist version of this practice. And at one point she said, what if we change it up? And as you're doing the Buddhist version, you think about how you might translate that for Christians. And so I thought, oh my gosh, that's a really cool idea. What would we do? And so we started exploring kind of how I was feeling about the practice and what that might look like if we were to include other Christians. Do you mind explaining what the practice was? I can't fully explain it to you, but what okay. I say uh, is that it uses prayer beads and you work your way three times around the prayer beads. Um, and there are sayings that you say uh, as you're working your way around the prayer beads. So for some Catholics, that may sound very familiar to using rosary beads. Um, mm -hmm. And there are some other ancient Christian practices that uses prayer beads as well. Um, but uh, it's it was a form that's really unique um, to the D Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And so I started exploring it in their faith tradition so that I could feel it for myself. And then I started translating it for Christians. Well, the class ended, we wrote our papers and, you know, all was well. Well, she could not figure out what to do for her doctor of ministry project. And it was like six months later and she was just uh, kind of at a loss. And we were both sitting there on Zoom, just kind of like you and I are now. And I said, Pema, I think we've already found your project. I think we did part one. And mm -hmm. we both sat there like, duh. Oh, how did we not, you know, think of that? And so what we did is we expanded the study to include a, a Buddhist group and a Christian group who would, the Buddhists would learn the Buddhist version, the Christians would learn the Christian version, and they would journal. Uh, they would do it every day for six weeks. They would journal about it every day for six weeks. And we would have a, an introductory uh, meeting about it. We would meet midway. We would meet at the end. But Pema and I were also in dialogue with people as things came up for them. And so the study really and the book is really about Pema and I, our meeting, our friendship, 
um, our calling within our different faith traditions and how many of our faith traditions we can come together and do a service project or we can mm. together to work towards this goal. But not often do we come together and do we say, how might we grow spiritually together? And mm. we thought that was the most fascinating, like, what would that be like? Uh, how would we do that? And is that, you know, questions of, is that safe for people? And mm-hmm. um, so we asked Christians to participate and we had very clear definitions of they had to be very committed to their faith tradition. Um, most of them were ministers in their Christian denomination. They're very rooted, so we wouldn't have a concern. And so it was a really neat time of discovery. And many of the things that I felt through the practice uh, came up for other people, validating my experience as well as uh, allowing me to see that I, I really do think that people who are committed to their faith traditions, that this could actually be beneficial. Yeah. And I remember reading the book and being, I don't know if I was surprised because I think I wanted to have it kind of result in this, you know, but I I think I remember the Christian side talked overwhelmingly so that it had deepened their faith yes that it didn't rob them of it that it didn't hook them in an unsafe way that actually and am i remembering correctly that some of them were even equally surprised that they had not been taught um just the and i'm imagining because you can't share the actual practice but i'm imagining the ability to slow down and prayerfully meditate um and how that can be incorporated better into our faith tradition. Absolutely. And it also had a lot to do with, so you use words in the meditation like safe direction or refuge. And and we have those words. They're all over the Psalms and um, in different parts of our sacred text. But in the Buddhist tradition, they start with how do we feel safe um, with our treasures. And so for us, that would equal, well, how would we feel safe with God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? And many of the Christians were like, you know, I I guess the church just assumes that we will feel safe. But mm. we talk about, well, how is it? Why is it that we would feel safe with God, within the community, with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus. And so that for them was like, whoa, I need to step back. And as I interact with people who are somewhere along their faith journey, not assume that there is this level of safety. Um, and so I thought that was really revolutionary and something that my, I mean, my doctoral project was how to create safe spaces for people to have spiritual conversations, meaning that people without a religious tradition or really an interfaith conversations, how do we hold safe space um, for that to take place? And so the fact that they were bringing out that, oh my gosh, I've never been talked to about safety and refuge Mm -hmm. and what does that mean and what does that look like? And so I thought that was really eye-opening. Oh, I could, you're right. We said before we hit record, we need to have like a lunch. That's a whole day (laughs) to just talk because I want to go down that rabbit hole so much. Um, and I know I need to let you go here in just a minute. Um, So when we talk about yoga and meditation, we've already brought up some of the fears that some people might have, some of the fact that it's maybe just unfamiliar and we haven't been taught it um, and we don't know how to do it. Or maybe what I found for myself is that I didn't know how to sit still. And in the last month, Matt and I just made um, the decision to really start to prayerfully meditate Mm -hmm. um, if possible every day Um, for me 
it has been most helpful if it incorporates some kind of music or worship, um, at least at this stage that I'm in, um, like some type of guided meditation that then goes into worship. And then, um, and also incorporating yoga for um, everything from just our bodies being well, releasing any of the trauma that we both have been holding. And we also made an agreement that um, we would do it at least once a week together and twice a week individually on our own time. And we found a great place that's amazing. And actually it's a general's wife um, who's, he's now retired, but she's the one that opened it up. So she's very like um, first responder military um, um, mindful, I guess, and accepting. And so I will say in like three weeks time, a significant difference for both of us, mm -hmm. like, significant amber like and i can't stress that enough to people and it's and it's the practice of slowing myself down i mean the first yoga session it took me an entire hour to get my mind not all the way into the parking lot you know and thinking about all the things i needed to do and how you know a, a better workout would be in the gym with me you know, or on a treadmill why am i wasting my time here you know but being able to just the practice of centering myself and the practice of being still and giving myself the permission and the love enough to like say that I can stop. I mean, has just been the beginning. And I've seen our compassion open up so much more towards each other, towards even more ourselves and just being more patient. Um, if somebody's listening right now and they're scared, Right. And they're like, I hear all the good things, but it just sounds strange or it just sounds scary to me. And what if they bring out the sound bowl, you know, like, <laughs> you know? like, what, what do I do? And like, what does it mean? And like, and then they say weird things like the light in me sees the light in you. And like, what, what do I like, what would you say to them? Um, and I know there's far more episodes that we need to do, but that you listening need to, um, to listen to. We can't answer it all in one session here, but Amber, what would you just say to encourage them? I'm sure you've heard all of the concerns. Absolutely. Um, I mean, first is to not say, oh, okay, because Amber and Corey said, I'm just going to go do it and I'm not going to listen to those things. No, that's not ever going to be the solution. So um, I would just encourage um even taking with you to yoga, a little book and writing down all your questions. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is don't resist the process. Like if you're, you've got fears and you've got questions, like go ahead and write them all out. And then I invite you to really process those with genuine curiosity. Like, I wonder why I feel that way. Or I wonder what story is behind this fear that's coming up. Um, and so in a very gentle way, having time for self-reflection of what stories you're telling yourself about what you're experiencing um, and, and then not resisting anything that actually does come up. But then... The same is true for if you are able to stick with the practice, which I would encourage you 100% to, is just continue to be curious about what other people say about you along the journey if they are noticing a difference. And I mean, I can remember my inner dialogue, I think for most of my life was shaming and not enough and angry at myself and very demanding. So my inner voice was highly critical and we all have it. That's very normal, very human. Um, and yet at the same time, it was the loudest voice present. And I remember sitting in meditation, which really, I will say meditation is where I am silently listening and waiting upon the Lord. So mm. a lot of our prayers are very verbal and it's like, God's like, well, let me get a word in. So meditation for me is when I get quiet 
so that I could hear that still small voice in all the noise, the noise of my thoughts, because they've got to get quiet, the noise of my body and whatever it's needing. Um, but I remember sitting in meditation and it was during the project that Pima and I did. So this was not that long ago and I've been practicing yoga a long time, but I remember sitting in my chair in my living room, focusing on my breath and just getting quiet. And I had the first, it's going to make me cry. I had the first kind voice to myself say, I'm so proud of you for sticking with this. Look at you. You're sitting in meditation. And I, I was like, whose voice is that? <laughs> what kindness to myself? Oh my, I mean, it was so powerful that I still get goosebumps when I talk about it. Because I, so sad, so sad. I had not heard that voice telling myself those things before. And so sitting with that too and getting curious of, okay, what's happening to me? How am I adjusting to this? Um, you know, I really believe that anything that makes us more hateful, less loving, less inclusive um, is not of God. But anything that adds to our ability to love and have compassion and to extend kindness to ourselves as well as to others, if it allows us to become more humble and more curious about how our beautiful bodies work and how our brains are wired and then curious towards others. I mean, I think that for me, my friends, that's what it means to follow Jesus. I couldn't have said it better. Um, Amber, thank you so much for your time. Um, I will even reach out. Like if you guys are listening and you have more questions, you know, I will bring Amber back because I think um, it's just so important and so valuable. And there's so much out there that is good and healthy that can help you be well. And the biggest thing that I'm seeing in our culture right now is that we are not well. Like as spouses, our kids, our adolescents, um, our service members are not well, not after two decades of the amount of stress and trauma that we've been through. And um, this is an important tool that has been introduced and studied for a very long time. And so um, I want us to not be afraid, but ask the right questions. And so Amber, thank you for your time. I know I've taken you over what we said. Um, I love you, my friend. And I um, thank you for introducing this into my world. Um, and I can specifically say it was introduced because, you know, we're told all the time in our faith that people will know Jesus um, when they experience you, that, you, that um, and Jesus said, they will know you, right, because of me. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I have to say, I knew you when you knew Jesus, but I have to say there was a different spirit and presence about you that 10, 15 years later, I was like, I want that. Mm. Like, I want more of that. And it was a kindness and a gentleness. And, and like I said, it wasn't that you weren't those things before, but something was different. And I don't know, that kind of wrecked, wrecked some of my belief system too. I had to go like, why is it that we both have had this faith tradition and been in leadership roles for this song? And yet, when I experienced that from you, I'm like, that's what I want. I want more of that. Yeah. Right. When we should have like somehow supposedly had that all along. I hope that makes sense. But um, thank you for introducing this into my world. Thank you for being brave and courageous and doing this hard work and serving people the way that you're serving people. So I will let you go. But thank you so much for joining me. I'm so grateful, um, not only for Amber's friendship, but just grateful for the journey she has had the courage to go on. If nothing else, I hope that hearing her story and hearing our conversation encourages you to at least talk with someone, um, maybe even in your faith tradition, who is practicing yoga and finding um, ways to intersect some of these practices in safe ways and in ways that make you um, feel a little bit more comfortable to try 
try it. I hope it also encourages you to pay attention to your body, pay attention to some of these parts of yourself. Maybe it's even in your mind or even in your emotions where it's time to lean in and it's time to listen and give a little bit more attention than maybe you've given to it in a long time. And so there are parts of ourselves that we sometimes cut off because life gets busy or maybe because we're not taught how to lean into that and listen listen to it. And even in counseling, it is the practice of slowing down and really thinking through our thoughts, thinking through what our emotions are, and oftentimes also listening to our bodies. And so when we can find the words to share what it is that we're going through and what our needs are, and then we can ask for what those are, those are all healthy steps to getting ourselves to a more well place. I hope this episode encourages you to lean into listening to maybe parts of yourself that you've not listened to for a very long time and take that to God and and ask those questions. And maybe even like Amber said, still yourself long enough to just um, listen for God's voice so that you feel safe in that space to hear him, but also safe to take the next step that you feel he is calling you to take, whatever that is. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for sharing this podcast. I hope it's helpful and I look forward to connecting with you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast or leave a review so others can find it as well. Were you thinking of someone else who would benefit from hearing today's episode? You can be a life giver to them by simply sharing it with an encouraging note. If you would like to connect with me or find out more about my work, you can visit www.coryweathers.com.